Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. And that was Stimela with Zwagala that took us to the top of the third hour, kicking off the fourth hour now. If you've just joined us, good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. You're listening to Channel Africa, an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you live from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa. And we're on the frequencies 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and 11925 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa and on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 808. You can, of course, let us know where you're listening from uh, using our WhatsApp line. That is plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. That is seven six three zero zero three three two seven. And if you're outside of the South African borders, that international dialing code is plus two seven. My name is Samora Mangesi. I am in studio with Anne Musa right now, Tabiso Lehoko, as well as Figile Lingwati. Let's just take a look at some of the top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. Zimbabwe's ruling ZANU-PF party and uh, the opposition MDC blame each other for yesterday's violence that left three people dead in Harare. The former vice president of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Jean-Pierre Bemba, arrives home to a hero's welcome. And in your sports, South Africa is looking at being crowned the top nation at the African Athletics Championships. But first, let's find out what is happening in the news this hour uh, with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Police in Zimbabwe say the three people confirmed to have been killed in the post-election violence in the capital Harare are yet to be identified. Police addressed the media last night. The senior assistant commander, Charity Charamba, says police are looking through footage to identify those involved in the protest which followed the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission's announcement of the results of parliamentary elections in which ZANU-PF won the majority. Charamba has warned that arrests are imminent. wish to express our sincere and deep condolences to the bereaved families. The ZRP is currently investigating the circumstances surrounding the death of these three people and the injury of other people as well. In the meantime, the deceased have not yet been identified. Meanwhile, there are growing international calls for calm in Zimbabwe after soldiers open fire to disperse opposition supporters alleging fraud in Monday's elections. The United Nations has called on the leaders and people of Zimbabwe to exercise restraint and reject all forms of violence. The UN Secretary-General's Deputy Spokesperson for Han Haq says the United Nations is monitoring the situation on the ground. Yes, we have been monitoring and we are concerned about the reports that there have been incidents of violence in some parts of Zimbabwe. Uh, We'd like to remind the incumbents and political parties of the commitments they made in the peace pledge and the code of conduct to ensure a peaceful electoral process. We call on the political leaders and the population as a whole to exercise restraint and reject any form of violence while awaiting resolution of the disputes and announcement of the election results. 
Fifteen Malian opposition candidates are demanding that the government investigate what they say was fraud in Sunday's presidential election. The elections were beset by armed attacks and problems with the distribution of voting cards. No election results have yet been published by Mali's Ministry of Territorial Administration, the only body that can legally do so. Two rivals of President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita have already claimed to have made it into a second round. Keita's ally says his well ahead in the poll, but have not ruled out the possibility of a runoff if it does not get the required 51%. The return of former Vice President of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Jean-Pierre Bemba, is expected to encourage opposition leaders to form a strong coalition ahead of the much-anticipated December polls. Bemba arrived in the capital on Wednesday to mount a presidential bid to succeed incumbent Joseph Kabila. Pemba, who is popular in Western Congo, is expected to forge a coalition with other opposition leaders like the business mogul Moise Katumbi to replace Kabila. Senior researcher at the universe in the Institute rather, for Security Studies, Stephanie Walters. He fought with Bemba in 2006 in those elections. They had to go to a runoff. He won by the skin of his teeth. There was violence after that. Bemba is a formidable rival to Kabila and always has been. Uh, He's very popular still in Kinshasa and in areas north of Kinshasa, so he's a very important challenge. Now, Moise Katumbi equally is somebody who is a thorn in Kabila's side. They used to be political allies in the same political party. His return on Friday will be a huge challenge. First of all, we're going to see people in the streets of Kinshasa and Lubumbashi supporting these two political rivals of the president's and that is something that will be difficult for him to see. And finally, a new Ebola outbreak has been declared in the eastern province of the Democratic Republic of Congo. The health ministry says four people have tested positive for Ebola. Days after another outbreak that killed 33 in the northwest was declared over. 20 people have already died from the hemorrhagic fevers in and around Mangina, a densely populated town southwest of the city of Beni. A team of 12 experts from Congo's health ministry is expected to arrive in Beni. That's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you very much, Anne. Anne is going to be back in 24 minutes to give you the news headlines at 8.30 a.m. Central African Time. But uh, something that has been in the news quite a lot recently, from the lead-up to, of course, the what transpired yesterday when the elections took place, Zimbabweans living in Harare have expressed mixed views as results continue to be released. ZANU-PF attained a two-thirds majority in the National Assembly as the party continued uh, the voters' trend in the rural areas. MDC Alliance, which was projected to do well at the polls, has mostly sealed the deal in urban areas, as Mbali Tetani tells us. During the early morning hustle and bustle of Zimbabwe's capital city, Harare, preliminary results of the country's 2018 election continued to be on everyone's lips. Many living in this urban area, which is mainly dominated by the opposition party, the MDC, were already disputing the tallied votes. Uh, The situation is tense. The situation is tense. They must finish their job. They must finish counting so we know where we are going. Uh, I'm not happy. Why aren't you happy? Because the results are, they are not realistic. They are not realistic at all. According to the last census conducted in 2012, 67% of Zimbabwe's population resides in the rural areas 
while 33% of Zimbabweans are based in the urban areas. But many on the streets of Harare believe that the rural votes have been rigged and do not understand why ZANU-PF is dominating the results. I'm not feeling good at all. This is now in void. They rigged the election. There is no population like that in rural areas. There is no one who voted for ZANPF. They rigged the elections. This is now in void. We are not here at all. I think it's a very big rigging. We can't expect 29,000, 32,000. Where are people from? In rural areas. If we are talking about urban, it's better. But we are being concerned about the results from the rural areas. If it was in town, we're going to understand not rural areas. They are they rigged elections already. So we will not accept that and we will march in the street for our freedom. Others in the CBD say they are pleased with the results and don't believe they have been manipulated. Uh, I think the results are fair and fine. I was in Mtoko yesterday, all the people in the rural areas, they, they are celebrating the victory of ZANU-PF and no one is beating each other, everyone is celebrating free and fair. We are satisfied. Zimbabwe's economy continues to be in crisis and many have high hopes that the economy will be turned around. This vendor who sells pies and refreshments says he's not too concerned about which party will win but hopes they will prioritize the conditions traders work under. Certainly finance would be a, a big thing to help but certainly also like you say infrastructure and simple things like just Water, availability of water and toilets is a, is a big concern with the size of the population that's around here that actually uses this, this particular area. It's quite large and if you go around the corner, the toilets are quite, quite few. So certainly, but money, definitely loans, certainly to boost the size of business. This woman who sells vegetables on the corner of one of the city's busiest intersections says she hopes whoever wins the election will help them develop their businesses. A proper place to sell this good and get some money is not selling few things like this. Yes, we want to sell everywhere and get some money. Another vendor says the next government should prioritize a good working space for them. We need a space, a space, a good space to sell our things, not on the street like this. We need a space, a good space only. Meanwhile, just in the same vicinity, a group of men have opted to trade in money and have created their own makeshift bank. This is where many come to exchange U.S. dollars for Zimbabwe's bond notes and vice versa. This man, an accounting graduate, says unemployment has forced him to become a hustler. The situation is not good. We don't feel good for that because <clears throat> this is not a matter of living. You know, we need to go to work. We are educated, like me. I'm an accountant by profession. But I there's no work I can go. There's no jobs in Zimbabwe. So what I have to do is to do this to make a living out of it. He says he hopes the party that wins prioritizes unemployment and create jobs, especially for the youth. The change that we just need in Zimbabwe is if they create employment it's for us, that's fine. That's all what we need. You know, just to live, to, to, to live a normal life, not this hustling life, you know. We are like hustlers every day in the street doing this. It's not good.
Meanwhile, as many continue to show their disapproval of the results, thousands of MDC Alliance supporters took to the streets, saying they will not accept the results. They approached the Elections Command Centre, saying it does not make sense why the results in Harare had not yet been released. The results, we, we know. We have got the information from some of the professional sec uh, officials. They told us Chiwenga is behind these fake results. I'm protesting the elections. They, inv- they inflated the numbers. Like, they are now reporting numbers in, in the rural areas. Why are they not reporting the numbers here in, in Harare? It is known that Harare is so close to the command center, but yet it is being announced the last. The excuse for late delivery of uh, results being that they're still collecting information. But Harare is just here. Presidential results are expected to be announced on Thursday. Ambali, Tetani and Harare in Zimbabwe. Still sticking with Zimbabwe at the moment, the president, Emerson Mnagwaka, says he holds the leadership of the MDC alliance responsible for the violence that erupted in the capital, Harare, yesterday following the announcement of the results of the parliamentary elections. Now, at least three people uh, were killed in battles between the police and protesters, and the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission is expected to announce the results of the presidential elections. Today, I'm pretty sure a lot of uh, Zimbabweans who are currently living in uh, South Africa at the moment are very excited for those, as well as other uh, countries as well. Umnakagwa says the violence has taken the government by surprise, though. Let's find out a little bit more. My fellow Zimbabweans, in the past month or so, our country saw a remarkably peaceful election campaign process like has never been witnessed before. Government went out of its way to ensure that the harmonized elections which are about to conclude unfold in an environment which is both calm and peaceful. To that end, government preached the message of peace which was largely accepted and heeded by our people. Building on that environment of peace, This Monday, July 30, Zimbabweans went out in record numbers to cast their votes and did so in the full glare of international observers and the world media. Our election management body, the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, ZAC, has been announcing results of that voting process. As I address you, Results for parliamentary seats are all but fully announced, with those for presidential candidates waiting for legal formalities before they are similarly announced. Like the campaigning in the voting process, this stage in our whole electoral process started off peacefully. Against this background, incidents of wanton violence and hooliganism, which broke out in the capital, come as a complete surprise. We hold the opposition MDC alliance and its whole leadership responsible for this disturbance of national peace, which was meant to disrupt the electoral process. Equally, we hold the party and its leadership responsible for any loss of life, injury, or damage to property 
that arise from these acts of political violence which they have aided and abated. The Alliance and its leadership has forthwith to remove its violent supporters from the streets so peace returns to our country. In asking them to take this necessary step, government is simply reminding them of their duties as the responsible political players and as citizens. In any electoral process, it is understood that some win while others lose. But those who lose should never translate their disappointment into hooliganism. I thank you. And that was Zimbabwe's caretaker, President Emerson Mnagwagwa. Later in the evening, though, Zimbabwe's main opposition party, the MDC, slammed the deployment of the army to the streets of the capital, Harare, following yesterday's violent protests, in which at least three people were killed. Now, MDC Alliance Presidency spokesperson, Dr. Nkululeko Sibanda, gave the statement. President Nelson Chamisa is shocked, saddened by the events in the capital today. This country, Zimbabwe, is for all who live in it. The rights and freedoms of our citizens as enshrined under our constitution are the fundamental basis upon which the relationships between the people and the state are best. The deployment of soldiers and the regrettable loss of life by unarmed citizens and civilians uh, today is reminiscent with and remind us, reminds us of the dark days of the cruel killing of thousands of innocent civilians in Matabelaland in the 1980s and the brutal murder of hundreds of MDC supporters in 2008 following the electoral theft. Today we saw the deployment of military tanks and firing of live ammunition on civilians for no apparent reason. Civilians are allowed to demand the respect of their rights in a lawful manner any disorder may be dealt with by the police who are best trained for public order. Soldiers are trained to kill during war. We are seriously meant to wonder what this means. Are we in war? Are civilians the enemy of the state? The loss of lives is the most painful experience we ever get subjected to. We are deeply hurt and feel vulnerable in our own country. The manner in which ZEC has conducted, conducted itself over the past few months and the announcing of the election results is irrational, inflammatory, and frankly dangerous. These young people have borne the brunt of poverty and bad governance for a long time and decades, and they rightly end for change. We condemn in the strongest sense the action that was taken today, there is no justification whatsoever for the brutality we experience today. Let us all maintain peace in the country while, whilst respecting the rights of citizens. The idea that protesters are violent is a false narrative that cannot be justified. We urge Zimbabweans and supporters to exercise their rights with due regard to the law and the rights of other citizens. The Zimbabwe Electoral Commission has a responsibility to handle elections in a manner that is fair, 
and does not unnecessarily prejudice the peace and security of our country. We call upon the, four lawful enforce, enforce, the law enforcement authorities to be human and exercise restraint accordingly. The force used today was clearly disproportionate and unjustified. The brutal, the brutal murder of citizens is not the way to address the concerns they are raising. We are all Zimbabweans. And that was MDC Alliance Presidency Spokesperson Dr. Ngulule Kosibanda addressing the media after yesterday's violence. It is you, the people, who are our true heroes. This is one of the most important moments in the life of our country. I stand before you filled with deep pride and joy, pride in the ordinary, humble people of this country. You have shown such a calm, patient determination to reclaim this country as your own from the rooftops free at last. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. And the return of former Vice President of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Jean-Pierre Bemba, is expected to shake up politics in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Now, Bemba arrived in the capital, Kinshasa, yesterday to mount a presidential bid to succeed incumbent Joseph Kabila. And the much-anticipated DRC national polls have been scheduled to be staged on the 23rd of December. Yeah, that's what I think it is. And uh, since attaining independence from Belgium in 1960, the DRC, which is Africa's biggest copper producer, hasn't had a peaceful transfer of power. Wow. Uh, so let's hear more from Tsepo Ikaneng. John Pierre Bemba arrived to a hero's welcome when he touched down at the capital, Kinshasa. He was flanked by throngs of his supporters after spending about 12 years incarcerated at The Hague in the Netherlands. This after the appeals chamber of the International Criminal Court overturned that conviction last month, paving the way for his return home. Bemba, who's popular in Western Congo, finished a runner-up to Kabila in the 2006 elections. He is expected to forge a coalition with other opposition leaders to replace Kabila. According to a senior researcher at the Institute for Security Studies, Stephanie Walters, the presence of both Bemba and Mozika Tumbi will weaken Kabila's political influence. He, he fought with Bemba in 2006 in those elections. They had to go to a runoff. He won by the skin of his teeth. There was violence after that. Bemba is a formidable rival to Kabila and always has been. Uh, he's very popular still in Kinshasa and in areas north of Kinshasa, so he's a d- very important challenge. Now, Moise Katumbi equally is somebody who is a thorn in Kabila's side. They used to be political allies in the same political party. Um, his return on Friday will be a huge challenge. First of all, we're going to see people in the streets of Kinshasa and Lubumbashi supporting these two political rivals of the president's and that is something that will be difficult for him to see. One of the presidential aspirants, business mogul Moise Katumbi, says he's ready to work with any opposition leader yearning to push for change in the strife-torn, mineral-rich Great Lake State. Katumbi, who ran Congo's mining heartlands of Katanga for eight years until September 2015, has vowed to use this experience to turn around the economic fortunes of a strife-torn country. Let's come together. Let's rebuild our country. 
I did it when I was governor. I brought back some engineers to work in the mine. I brought doctors from South Africa, from Europe to come and work and give them good salary. I think Congo is our mother. We need everyone to, to come. That's why I want to bring back the good leadership. Let the people of Congo choose their candidate. The DRC election was originally scheduled for late 2016, but has been twice delayed, leading to unrest and the displacements of hundreds of people. Kabila has controversially stayed on as leader, despite the end of his presidential mandate. Opposition leaders have long accused Kabila, head of state since 2001, of delaying the vote in order to retain power and change the constitution. There are concerns that he might renege on his pledge to vacate office by the end of the year. However, his top envoy in Pretoria, Ambassador Ben Mpoko, has dismissed the claims as baseless. President Kabila has stated he will respect the constitution. And um, therefore, I don't know why the opposition is saying all that. Uh, they should be concentrating on the campaigning and organize themselves to go to elections. You know, elections are coming, organize yourself and present yourself to the people of Congo. And, yeah. and we'll see who is going to win. Besides Bemba, other opposition leaders like Muizi Katumbi, Felix Shechelkedi, Martin Fayuli and Vital Kamehe have been nominated by their parties to run for president. Both Bemba and Katumbi are expected to hold the coalition talks ahead of the deadline of the filing of presidential candidature, which is set for Wednesday next week. Tsebwekaneng, Pretoria. Well, the time is now 8.25, only five minutes up until we get to the news headlines. But before we do that, South Africa's lobby group, Afri Forum, is now gunning for the leader of the country's economic freedom fighters, which is Julius Malema, following the social media video clip showing him brandishing a firearm during the party's fifth anniversary. Now, Afri Forum laid criminal charges against Malema and the head of EFF security, Andreas Neyman, following the fireworks demonstration and emulation. Now, this will all... This all happened in uh, my hometown of East London. Uh, But anyway, meanwhile, the EFF has accused the civil rights group of acting like the infamous Ku Klux Klan. Neo Makuting reports. Afri Forum has laid criminal charges against the EFF leader Julius Malema. Following a video that went viral on social media showing the EFF commander-in-chief discharging what looks like a rifle in public during the party's fifth anniversary in Eastern Cape over the weekend. Cameron says Malema's action of shooting in the air during the public gathering, as captured on the video, shows that he has violated the gun control laws and it is unlawful. It's obviously very worrying to see that um, it's being discharged in such a way at a public meeting and uh, the fact that a senior political leader acts this way in front of a lot of people in the public creates an impression that it's okay to to be negligent with a firearm and and obviously the last part and that we can explain now as well is that the person who seems to be taking the firearm from him after he fires the shots is the head of his security team which was also the head of his security when he was in the ANC Youth League and which was also linked to cash and transit heists uh, uh, between 2009 and 2011. Cameron says they have also added the EFF chief of security who handed Malema the gun in their charge sheet. 
We have added Mr. Sneiman to the charges that have been laid, so we will now see what the police do in the rest of the investigation. I think the fact that Mr. Sneiman is part of Bluff Security Company, it's also going to create an, uh, an investigation that might happen to the security company itself to determine whether it was a security company firearm. Um, if so, um, why was it there? Who was using it? Who's competent to use it? And so forth. So there's a whole private security investigation that should also be done that might come out of these charges that we have laid at Littleton. EFF spokesperson Mbuyiseni Ndlozi has dismissed Afri Forum accusations that Julius Malema fired an assault rifle during the party's fifth anniversary. He says no real firearm and live bullets were used during the party celebration. It was not a firearm and uh, no real ammunition or bullets were fired. It was a simulation as part of the celebrations of the EFF that was also coordinated to coincide with the fireworks. We did that to evoke both uh, the celebration and the memory of our struggle uh, during a colonial and apartheid time. It was also accused Afri Forum of being attention seekers and opportunistic, like the infamous Kutlikstan. Afri Forum is obviously being opportunistic in this case because it's very clear as a bunch of Ku Klux Klan, their name, the commander-in-chief of the EFF and the EFF, their agenda, motivated obviously by anti-black race, because they led a march called Black Monday, in which real guns were displayed and in some instances fired. It would be important to ask them whether they have also in that case opened cases against those people if they so care about public law. AFRI Forum is also contemplating reporting the head of EFF security, Andres Neyman, to the authority regulating the private security companies. I'm Nemo Kitting in Pretoria. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. The time is now 8.30. It is a beautiful day in Johannesburg, South Africa. And I hope that Anne is not going to ruin our day with some bad news. Let's find out what's happening in the headlines. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Zimbabwe's main opposition party, the MDC Alliance, slams the deployment 
of the army to the streets of the capital Harare following violent protests in which three people were killed. 15 Malian opposition candidates demand that the government investigate what they say was fraud in Sunday's presidential election and a new Ebola outbreak has been declared in the eastern province of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Those are the stories making headlines. Now, whether or not to regulate social media has elicited differing views uh, within the media sector in light of the potential that algorithms have in spreading fake news and misinformation. Now, the Gote Institute in South Africa's economic city of Johannesburg hosted a discussion titled Fake News, Algorithms and You, focusing on how algorithmic systems can contribute to a distorted view of reality. Uzoleka Kodashe attended the event and filed this report. Algorithms are computer programs and formulae that help us find our way through the huge amounts of information on the internet. If you search on Google, for instance, algorithms recommend articles or videos. They can sometimes censor content deemed violent or of a pornographic nature. But algorithms, especially on social media, can also spread fake news or misinformation. And with the 2019 elections just months away, there are growing concerns over the role of social media including its role in spreading fake news and misinformation. Some argue that regulating digital media will be key before South Africans head to the polls. But others say this is not healthy for a growing democracy like ours. Former editor of the City Press, Feriel Hafiji. I'm very much against the regulatory model of, I think, good investigative journalism and cyber sleuthing did its work. I mean, our online army of cyberfoods was so excellent that it got well contingent closed down. So for me, the solution is, is um, investigative journalism over regulation. Director of Media Monitoring Africa, William Byrd, says the electoral code should widen its scope to include digital media. So as we approach elections next year, We've seen things happening in Zimbabwe just recently in relation to allegations of misinformation campaigns. We've seen how they impacted the state. Facebook has just discovered that there's a concerted campaign to influence the midterm elections coming up in November. So these things are, are there. If they're impacting them, we can bet that they're going to impact us. Currently, however, our electoral code says absolutely nothing on digital media. Founder and executive director of Algorithm Watch in Germany, Matthias Spilka, says it is important to dissect algorithmic systems as they can assist in disseminating fake news. At least this decision support is based on troves of data that are analyzed by algorithmic systems. And we think that's very important that we as a society ask for accountability and scrutinize these systems to find out whether they actually work in a way that we appreciate and not in a way that we don't. Concerns have also been raised over the actual decision-making in the design of the algorithms. Spielke says these technologies should be developed in order to depict a more accurate version of reality. They can get it wrong very often. At the same time, we are not against using these systems because human-based decision-making is erroneous many times as well. So what we are saying is don't just demonize these technologies. That's not what we are about. We are about developing these technologies in a way that... As a society, we have a say in that, especially when we are talking about relevant decisions. 
Bird says, while he may advocate for the regulation of digital platforms, journalism should also be funded in order to combat misinformation and allow credible journalism. There's a lot that can be done. It is about finding different funding models. It is about making sure that we take on social media in terms of saying, well, how do we make sure that this supports credible journalism? How do we make sure that all people are able to support credible journalism? Part of that is about highlighting credible journalists in order to encourage more people to support them. With a plethora of information available online, people can easily fall prey to fake news. However, sticking to the basics and fact-checking is one way of combating fake news and misinformation. Sticking to well-known, established and credible news sources is also one of the best ways to avoid falling for fake news stories. I am Zolega Kotashi in Johannesburg. Oh man, I could say Zoleka's surname all day. Kodashe. Thank you very much to her for filing that story. But now moving on to Yemen, a UN humanitarian coordinator for Yemen, Lisa Grande, says damage to the civilian infrastructure in the Yemeni port city of Hudaida could jeopardize everything relief operations are trying to do. Now, last year, Yemen suffered the greatest cholera outbreak in modern history, leaving humanitarian operations one tiny step ahead of a major cholera catastrophe. But with already 75% of the population dependent on humanitarian aid, Grande says the severely malnourished might be too weak to survive another outbreak. We are very concerned by the impact of airstrikes and fighting on the ground in Hodeida. Very particularly, we are worried about the impact of the destruction and damage that's been done to water systems and to sanitation systems. Last year, Yemen saw the worst cholera outbreak in modern history, and one of the epicenters for the epidemic was Hodeida. Now, already... Cholera is present in Hudaydah. There are cases of it, and in just the last week, we've seen an exponential increase in the number of people who have contracted this deadly disease. And it's for this reason that when the airstrikes damaged sanitation facilities and damaged water systems, that the UN felt that we had to speak out clearly and strongly and demand that all of the parties to the conflict do everything they can to protect civilian infrastructure. You said that uh, Yemen could be one airstrike away from an unstoppable epidemic. What would a cholera epidemic do in a country like Yemen right now? If I can give you an example of, of what we're worried about, a scenario that could happen, usually a water point will service about 250 to 300 households in a district in Hudaydah. If cholera is already present in that neighborhood, and if E. coli or the bacteria that leads to cholera, if that infiltrates or contaminates the water system, we could see cholera spread to all of the households in that neighborhood within two, three, maybe four days. If we can't contain it, cholera will spread to the surrounding neighborhoods within a week, a week and a half. If we can't contain that, the entire city could be engulfed in this epidemic within just a few weeks. And that's why the UN has said that Hudaydah could be one airstrike away from a major unstoppable cholera epidemic. Now, the impact of that would be catastrophic. Even before the fighting started in Hudaydah, 
25% of all of the children in the city were malnourished. Their bodies are desperately weakened. If a child who is malnourished contracts cholera, we have to face the grim but wholly unshakable fact that that child may not survive, that they would be unable to fight cholera. This is why we are so worried, and this is why we have said to all of the parties to the conflict, protect civilian infrastructure, don't hit the sanitation systems, don't hit the water systems. Do you have the capacity, you and your partners, to deal with uh, such an, uh, an epidemic if it happened? The humanitarian crisis in Yemen is the largest in the world, and the humanitarian operation in the country is the largest in the world. We have partners on the ground, heroic frontline partners, who are doing absolutely everything they can to prevent cholera, to prepare for it, and to respond to it when it emerges. I don't want to pretend that we're not stretched. We are. If you're dealing with the worst crisis in the world, we are pulled in so many directions. But so far this year, although cholera is present, although there are definitely people who are impacted by it. We haven't had the kind of epidemic that we had last year, and that's because of the work that frontline partners and the UN agencies and the authorities on the ground are doing. We're staying one tiny step ahead of a major cholera catastrophe, and we want it to stay that way. We want to stay, in fact, not just one tiny step ahead. We want to stay many steps ahead. Well, if there is damage to civilian infrastructure, it jeopardizes everything that we're trying to do. And that's why we're asking, calling on the parties to the conflict to protect water systems, protect sanitation systems. Uh, you are in Sana'a. Have you been to Hudaida recently or do you have staff on the ground over there? What do they tell you about the, the lives of the ordinary Yemenis in Hudaida? There are more than 50 United Nations staff that are working in Hudaydah, and there are tens of frontline non-governmental organization staff, NGO staff that are there, and we've been there throughout. The UN never left Hudaydah. All during the fighting, all during the airstrikes, we've stayed and we've delivered and we've promised the people of Hudaydah that we're not leaving. We're going to do everything we can to be there with them in this dark, dark time of need. You know, Hudaydah is one of the worst impacted areas in Yemen. Some of the highest levels of vulnerability in the entire country are in Hudaydah. The life for the people who are there is absolutely desperate, and this is why the UN has said, you can count on us. We're going to do everything we can to make sure that, uh, that you survive and that your family survive. We've made that promise. We're going to live up to it. And the dire situation is all over Yemen as well. WFP recently warned uh, that Yemen is on the brink of a famine if if the situation persists. So um, can you talk to us a little bit ab- about this, about people going hungry? 75% of all of the civilians in Yemen, 75% of that population depends upon some form of humanitarian assistance and protection. There is no other country in the world where 75% of the population depends on humanitarian aid. That's the reality in Yemen. Right now, 8.5 million Yemenis do not know where their next meal will come from. They are suffering from debilitating, severe hunger. We estimate that if this war doesn't stop, by the end of this year, 
in five months' time, 10 million more Yemenis will be in exactly the same situation. That's 18 million people who will be suffering from severe hunger. Already, 7 million Yemenis are malnourished. 7 million people are malnourished. You know, this, this is why the UN says that the crisis in Yemen is the worst in the world. It's one of the worst crises in modern history. And that's Lisa Grande, a UN humanitarian coordinator for Yemen, talking to UN Radio's Reem Abaza. The time is now 8.43 Central African time. You're still listening to Africa Rise and Shine on Channel Africa. Attention to our listeners. The first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The 1700-hour show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700-hour Central African Time show. The 1900-hour Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa giving you an African perspective. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Just a quick reminder, if you want to get in contact with us, you can, of course, use our WhatsApp line. That is, of course, 763 uh, If you're outside of the South African borders, be sure to use that international dialing code, which is plus 27. On Twitter, it's at Channel Africa 1, and, of course, at uh, Rise Shine Africa. You can also email us, info at channelafrica.org. But right now, it's time for us to find out what is happening, what is new in the world of economics uh, with, of course, Mr. Tabi Solihoko. Good morning. The latest statistics shows show that uh, intra-Southern African development community trade is low, standing at 25% of potential due to a lack of industrialization within the region. This was said by SEDEC Secretariat Director of Industrial Development and Trade, Tapiwa Samanga, adding that intra-Africa trade was also low. Speaking at the opening of the annual SADC Industrialization Summit in Namibia's capital, Venthuk, Samanga said the region was not producing what it consumes. 
South Africa's APSA Group has officially launched WhatsApp Banking in its latest push to become a digitally-led African bank with more than 10,000 customers already registered to date since early July. The service faces competition from WeChat to China's biggest internet-based mobile messaging platform, which launched in Africa in 2013 and offers an array of services including money transfers, prepaid electricity and airtime purchases. APSA CEO Maria Ramos has drawn up an ambitious growth strategy to regain market share in retail banking in South Africa and double sales across Africa from 6% to 12% after the bank's separation from Barclays. The rate at which Ghana's commercial banks lend to customers will soon be standardized. Senior Minister Usafa Maafo says that the situation where banks charge different rates is not allowing businesses to operate competitively, something the government intends to address. Speaking at the Graphic Business Stand Big Breakfast meeting in the capital Accra, the minister said the Bank of Ghana was working to put in place measures to bring down the cost of borrowing. Maafo says a Côte d'Ivoire and Togo are in the same zone and their interest rate is 45 to 5%. Players in the Kenyan tourism industry say the sector is one of the areas that have been hurt following the unfortunate death of 11 rhinos that were recently translocated to the Tsavo National Park. Kenya Tourism Federation says that the sector has felt the negative impact of the loss as it depends on wildlife tourism to stay in business. The Federation lamented that it would take the country time to recover from the loss, indicating that it takes time, hard work and commitment to raise rhinos to adulthood. The Board of South African Express, with the agreement of Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Gordon, has appointed Sizam Zimela as the new acting CEO for the airline. The current acting CEO, Matsietzi Mokholo, will be taking up a new position at the presidency. Zimela's appointment comes after the presidency's announcement that the national carrier, South African Airways, will be moved from Treasury to the Public Enterprises Department under Minister Pravin Gordon. The US dollar trades at 10.9 Botswana Pula. It's at 9.87 in Zambia. In BRICS currencies, it's trading at 3.75 Brazilian real, at 62.74 Russian ruble, and at 68.25 Indian rupee, 6.82 Chinese yuan, and at 13.24 to the South African rand. 76 pence to the British pound, 85 cents to the euro, gold $1,219, platinum $816 an ounce. The price of brand crude oil is at $72.65 a barrel from an African perspective. I'm not sure if I actually trust a sports broadcaster that doesn't trust like he's going to play sports. But you can trust this one because Fihile Lengwadi looks like he's going to leave the studio and go play some football. Let's find out what's happening in the world of sport. Yeah, sure, we begin with athletics before we 
run. South Africa will be looking to be crowned the top nation at the African Athletics Championship in Asaba, Nigeria for the third consecutive edition by the end of this week. The country topped the medals table in Devon two years ago, winning 33 in total, 18 gold, 9 silver and 8 bronze. The championships will have an extra incentive for the athletes with winners in each individual event earning a place for the IAAF Continental Cup in Ostrava, Czech Republic next month. Middle distance queen Kasta Semenya will spearhead South Africa's charge at the biennial showpiece, eyeing a 400 and 800 meter double gold medal haul. The men's long jump should also provide some fireworks as compatriots Luvo Manyonga and Rushal Samai continue their arm wrestle in the sand pit. And according to a senior official from the anti doping agency of Kenya, ADAC Sprint, Bonface Moresa has failed the doping test and has been dropped from the team for the African Championships in Asaba, Nigeria. Samples from Weresa were taken on the 6th and the 8th of June at the Kenya Defense Forces Championship in Nairobi and contained a banned substance. Channel Africa's Kenyan-based correspondent, Francis Mutegi, has more on the latest doping scandal to hit the country. Well, the first thing is that, of course, uh, the team will have lost one of its uh, major uh, dependents in terms of the 400-meter trace, and that is the spring trace for Kenya. And, of course, uh, having represented the country in various events, including the previous uh, African championships that were held in Brazzaville, that is the All-Africa Games, and, of course, uh, having played in the uh, recent Games of Commonwealth, as well as the previous edition that was in Glasgow, that was in 2014, uh, it's a clear indication that, of course, the Kenyan team will be losing one of its uh, major dependents. But, of course, with the frustrations that teams are facing in uh, Asaba, Nigeria also, I don't think uh, his case has been given a lot of limelight, especially in Kenya. People are more concerned about the team's uh, arrival in Asaba and, of course, how it can perform under the circumstances that they arrived there. On to football news, South African duo of Christopher Harrison and John Mervyn van Veig have been invited to take part in the CAF Young Talent Referees course set to take place in Kampala, Uganda from the 14th to the 18th of September this year. The South African refereeing duo will jet off to the Ugandan capital on the 13th of September for the official opening ceremony before kicking off what promises to be a fruitful and insightful four-day refereeing course in Kampala. Harrison and Van Veik will be amongst 40 match officials from different parts of Africa to take part in the course, which, amongst other things, will see the referees undergoing medical, physical, theoretical and technical tests during the course. SAFA Technical Committee Chairperson Natasha Chiglas wished the duo the best of luck in Uganda and urged them to absorb as much knowledge and information as possible for the benefit of South African football. After finishing in the final third last season with a top goal scorer Luvo Memela only scoring five goals in all competitions, Orlando Pirates have continued to strengthen their technical team. Pirates coach Milutin Mitro Seredovich is hoping that Adams, the new appointed finishing specialist, will help to solve this problem. As uh, our chairman likes to say, we are controlling the uh, happiness index in this country. And having that in mind, we, we cannot allow stone unturned in order to uh, take care of every possible details that could make us having advantage and being the trendsetters on the South African football scene. And if we want players to serve the team in the best possible way, then we need to lift their uh, 
technical uh, quality, especially in an aspect in finishing that has been an, uh, a factor that has not only us, but overall uh, been South African problem. So having that in mind, we have taken the bold step in order to uh, take care even of that aspect of the game. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. And that wraps up Africa, rise and shine today from myself, Samora Mangesi, producer, Lebo Musoyo, and Khumutso uh, Muplane, technical producer, Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team, thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments on our show, be sure to send a WhatsApp message to this number. It is 76300. 3327 that is 7630033273 and of course uh, if you are outside of the South African borders be sure to use that international dialing code it is plus 27 you can also hit us up on uh, twitter at uh, africa uh, shine africa or uh, at in at channel africa 1 and whilst you there be sure to follow us as well